Hello and welcome to the Compassionate Leadership Interview. I'm Chris Whitehead and my guest today is Elena Armio, Certified Coach, Dare to Lead Facilitator and founder of the C-Suite Collective, an organisation that supports women in the workplace. You can find Elena on Instagram at elena.armio, that's A-R-M-I-J-O. Welcome, Elena. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. Elena, you started out as an opera singer. What motivated you to follow that career? Well, uh, when I was growing up, you know, music was always a big part of my household and my culture. I came from a very small town in New Mexico called Las Cruces, which is on the border near El Paso, Texas. And I would consider that area very diverse in the United States, multicultural. And so I was exposed to all different kinds of music growing up. My mom likes to tell a story where she can remember that, you know, as a kid, I would take a hairbrush and run up to the TV and sing with anything that came on. So I, I like to say that music finds you and chooses you every step of the way. And, and um, definitely through my career, there were times, many times that I tried to leave and uh, pivot and I never did. And it always found me in some way, shape or form. So so uh, I was encouraged to continue that path and um, found my way into university, an undergrad degree in music education and a master's degree in vocal performance. And uh, the whole way, I never intended to sing. I just wanted to teach music and have music be a part of my life. And uh, people kept paying me to sing every step of the way. So I kept saying yes. And um it led to a really fulfilling, beautiful career where I got to see the world in my 20s and early 30s. And I got to meet all different kinds of people across the world and be exposed to lots of different types of conversations. And uh, that's that's kind of how I started on that path. And why did you make the switch to coaching? Well, I remember uh, at some point during my career when I, when I had sort of, I was sort of in the middle part of my career where I could see that the next 20 years were going to kind of take a certain shape of how it would look. And I was getting burned out. There was a period of four years there where I was on the road, 10 months straight out of the year. And I would come back to New York to just change out my suitcase for clothes that I would need wherever I was going next. And so it was this constant motion of my life of being on the road and through that, there was a lot of loneliness and, um, you know, I would miss important events with my family, uh, relationships would fail. <laughs> you know, I think at one, one point for one year, I had three different relationships that would just, you know, crumble from the weight of my career. And also me not being able to be places that, you know, if you were on contract, you had to be on contract or you wouldn't get paid. And so what I realized through all of that was I was severely unhappy and I had a lot of guilt because where I came from, I was successful. And so, you know, how, how is it that I could be so successful in this career that I chose and still be so unhappy and so guilty for not being happy. So I had this moment where I had to have a, a moment where I took a pause and really looked at what was going on in my life and decided, I'm not sure I want to keep doing this for the next 20 years. And I hired a coach myself to work with. And through that work, 
I really discovered how I'd built this entire career, which was from a sense of proving my worth in the world or proving to my parents that I could do this big, massive thing. And if I, if I worked really hard and I made it to these places, then I was safe, loved and respected. And so I had to deconstruct all of that to even get to what I really want in the world. And when I, when I did that work for about a, a year and a half, it took to, to take a look at all that. I discovered that again, what I probably always knew when I was a little girl, which was music was just for my heart. And I never really wanted it to be a business. And I loved working with people. And for the first time, you know, along my journey, I'd always looked for something I wanted to do. Coaching was the thing I fell in love with just like music, but I could really see myself uh, creating a business out of and supporting people with across the world. Can we start by briefly looking at why we need more women in positions of power and influence in our workplaces? Because it isn't that women are underrepresented in the workplace in general, but they're underrepresented in senior roles, is it not? My opinion on why I think we need more women in these places is because women bring a sense of compassion and um, empathy and expansion. And I don't think that it's men don't possess this. I think men have this too, but traditionally, especially in the United States, it's been built in a structure that, that comes from power dynamics and control in the C-suite arenas. And for women, um, we're seeing for the first time, we're really bringing a different style of leadership to the table. So having more of this as an equal balanced opportunity I think creates a wider conversation. And I think we teach each other things. You know, I, I think about all the mentors in my life that have been men that have helped me get to where I've gotten to. And the thing that I've learned from them is to stand up for myself, to find my voice again, to be powerful in the world where maybe I was traditionally taught that I needed to follow a certain path. And what they've learned from me is heart and empathy and courage and that there's space to be seen as a human. And that style has really opened up, you know, their hearts as well. And so all of this leads to a really big conversation around how are we building a new style of leadership in the world that has people feel included and belonging. You said that high achieving women are under supported in the workplace at every level. What leads you to that conclusion? Well, what I've noticed in my clients and who I serve is that most of these women, um, because they're alone and, and they're one, right, in a sea of many, don't often get their needs met. So now that's not all on men, right? That is up to women to actually speak up and say what they need. But oftentimes I think there's an assumption that they will need the same things that maybe men do. And that's just not true. There might be some flexibility that they need in terms of uh, parenting or in terms of maternity leave or even in terms of just emotional bandwidth or space to make decisions. And so what we're finding is that if there is support at those levels and what that looks like is, are they part of an organization where they are, you know, mentored by other women? Do they have a personal coach? Do they um, have mental health benefits that are available to them? And honestly, I would say that for men and women, right? Not just women, but really supporting women from a different lens, as opposed to, our one package in HR that works for everybody will work for everybody. So it becomes more of an individualized approach. And I think the more that we can um, encourage that kind of support, the more we're going to see women feeling like they actually can be in those rooms and they can bring more women up as well. Do you feel that the situation has improved or deteriorated 
during the pandemic? I think at the start of the pandemic, it definitely deteriorated because what the pandemic exposed for all of us was maybe the places where we were just holding it together barely <laughs> for everyone. And I like to say with my clients, you know, the one thing that you were running from before the pandemic, all of a sudden was right in, in your house, sitting at your living room table with, you know, saying, saying, here I am, you've got to deal with me now. And for women, um, you know, I think a common household conversation was, okay, we're two parents. We're now working at home. We have no child care support. You make more money than I do. So I'm the one that's going to let go of my position and we're going to make this work for a while. And just by the nature of, you know, even uh, salaries being different and not equal, that was a conversation that was, was sort of a given in any household where I think women just said, okay, well, this makes the most sense for now. And so we saw a massive amount of women leaving the workforce at the very beginning. Do I think that's shifting now? I do, because I think after two and a half years, roughly of us going through the pandemic, people have started to have real conversations about what they really want. And that's starting at home, right? With, with parents or even single parents looking at how do I want my life to work? And I keep, I keep mentioning family because I think that's the majority of what I've seen, but this is also for people that don't have families, right? That had to be in the pandemic alone or had to look at the way that they're living or spending their life. And so I, I think it's really had people reevaluate how they live. And therefore we're having a new conversation about what needs and support look like. And how would you characterize excellence when it comes to supporting women in the workplace? What does that look like? Ooh, I love this question because ah, excellence is such a beautiful word because I think Oftentimes we hear excellence and in our minds, we might say perfection. And so when we're supporting women from an excellent view, we're supporting them to be the best versions of themselves while having their humanity in place as well. I think oftentimes women, I'll speak for myself, but as a woman, I put a very high bar on myself to be perfect all the time or to get it right all the time. And that comes from my trauma. That comes from how I was raised, all kinds of stuff, right. That we can trace it back to. And it's really important for me to understand that excellence can be achieved without perfection. And so, um, that's why when anybody talks about excellence, it lights me up because there's so much possibility in what that word can actually mean for people. If we're willing to take away the, the shame and the perfection around it. Mm. So what, what does it look like there? I think that's a great insight, incidentally, that excellence yeah. and perfection are quite different and almost perfection is the enemy of excellence. But, but yeah. What, yeah. What, what would you say excellence in supporting women looks like? I think it, it looks like having a, a, a culture where women feel free to say what's really on their minds, where shame is low in the culture, or if shame comes up, you actually have the tools to tend to it in the moment. I think partnership is key. So a form of excellence of, in women is somebody who's well-supported with partnership. And what that means is, can I come, can I come to work and say, hey, I, I need a mental health day today. I'm not doing well and I need to take a break. Do you have my back? Can you cover all this for today? And let's reassess what support I'm going to need tomorrow when I take care of my well-being. That's excellence because that's somebody who is taking care of themselves at a high level and before burnout happens or before the, the moment of, I can't do this anymore and I've got to go Bye, peace out <laughs> before that moment happens, you're actually tending to the breakdowns in real time. So it's, 
it really is seeing the full person. And the results of that are people that are happy, healthy. They're producing more from an ROI perspective because their battery isn't so low. In terms of coaching and excellence, you know, I, I really think that when you give a C-suite woman a coach, you will watch her work at her blind spots and her patterns that she hasn't seen to really uncover what's been in her way. And that is excellence. So it's not just a matter of procedures being in place. It's for you, it sounds like it's very much a matter of culture, isn't it? Yes. I think everything is about culture. It's not only procedures, but you know, one of the things we're seeing right now is we talk about uh, the great resignation that's happening in the United States in particular. And um, I like to call it the great reinvention because that's actually what's happening. We're reinventing workplace culture in real time. And what I'm noticing is people are longing for their personal value system and what they believe in the world to matter to a company. They want and are craving a place where they feel seen and heard and respected. And when they create that culture, they're willing to show up and be loyal and actually be in partnership with a company. And that's been something that's been missing for a really long time. And um, I think that's the key to what's actually turning this conversation around from a, a wellness perspective and a mental health perspective and creating people that are actually full uh, healthy humans, as opposed to just people that come to work. So how do you establish and embed that culture? I think it has to start with getting really real about what the gap is right now. You know, so a lot of the work we're doing with, with C-suite leaders is we're coming in and we're saying, Hey, what's really going on? So sure. It's, it's doing 360s. It's getting feedback from your people, but it's looking at like what happened the last three years? Why did people leave? What were the exit interviews that were being said? What's the feedback that's being given to you? What's the overall context of your culture? If I walk in, what are people going to say that they feel when they're here? And really getting clear on what the gaps are and then creating a plan from there that's long-term. I think the other thing that I talk to leaders about a lot is, you know, leaders are sort of in this 911 crunch mode where they're saying, yes, I have a culture problem and I need to fix it right now. So we're going to bring in a chief diversity officer or we're going to you know, hire you to do that dare to lead program for 24 hours. And that'll be it. And I'm the first one to say, Hey, that's not actually going to work. So <laughs> it, it is not a band-aid approach. Are you willing to invest time and money for an entire year or multiple years to reinvent this culture from the top down? And it starts with the C-suite. So we always start with our leaders and any leader that, that I come across that is sort of saying, no, my C-suite doesn't need that work. It's our people that need that work. So I want you to start with our people. I say, oh, I'm probably not your coach <laughs> because if you're unwilling to take on the work yourself first, then, then nothing will change. How can a female job candidate tell whether or not the company they're joining offers the right work environment? I think it's a beautiful time to ask questions and Remember that when you are being interviewed, you are also interviewing the other person. And for the first time, we're seeing that you actually have room to do that. Because I think before there was a lot of fear around saying the wrong thing or being seen as too pushy or, or coming across as aggressive. These are all the words we hear as women. And right now, what we're seeing is that women are actually showing up and going into these interviews and asking very bold questions that are full of love, but are direct. 
So a question like that could look uh, like, I noticed that the majority of your, your leadership team is white and I'm a biracial woman. And how will I be supported in this culture as a biracial woman? It's a very open-ended question, but it will give you a lot of information on how they respond or what systems they have in place, or if they're willing to even talk to you about it. And I think these are the questions that you have to ask to really understand if you are going to be a cultural fit for them. Otherwise, you're just saying yes to a job that six months later, you might be saying, wow, I really wish I'd done you know, more of those hard questions at the beginning because they're not a fit. So I say that that goes for salary, that goes for a hybrid work approach, that goes for, um, you know, what are, what are your policies if some of my family, you know, gets COVID, what's next? So it's all of these really tough questions that before, from a legal perspective, HR was sort of like, no, we can't have any of these conversations with people. And now employees are demanding these conversations and it's really having companies come to the table and have a more robust conversation. In episode four of this podcast, we heard from Jodie Hill, who started her own company, Thrive Law, after suffering a nervous breakdown working for a mainstream law firm. According to research published by NHS Digital in 2014, women in full-time employment are nearly twice as likely as men to have a common mental health problem. Is it reasonable to conclude that mental health support is particularly important to women in the workplace? I think the first thing I'd ask about that research is who did they survey? Because I'm always really curious about uh, surveys like that in, in terms of diversity. So, you know, where are we getting the research from? Are you interviewing women in circles that are in the C-suites already in terms of their mental health? And are they white? How many are the majority of them are, are multiracial or from different backgrounds or socioeconomic platforms? Because look, mental health is all about your trauma and your origin, your family of origin stories. So I think it's a little hard to put into a bucket of black and white. And if that is the data and the research and it's been done, you know, the way I would expect most research to be done fairly, then I would say, let's look at the past 50 years for women and what women have been juggling in terms of pay equality, becoming a mom, uh, reinventing roles of what being a mom means in a household. I can remember growing up that my father never explicitly said he needed me to be married to be safe, but it was a very cultural, a Latin culture thing where, where that was implied. And there was at one point, I mean, I got engaged when I was 21. And the entire reason I got engaged was because I thought it would make my father happy to know I was safe. And luckily I called off the wedding before we had it because I got really clear that that was not the reason to get married. But those are the kinds of things that, you know, when I think about mental health, I think about, we never know someone's story. And so I wonder what those statistics really mean for, for women versus men. Cause I don't know, all of the men I've worked with, you know, when we, when we uncover some of that stuff and we get in there and we start working is just as, you know, <laughs> traumatic, <laughs> what women have gone through. So I, I don't know. I, I think my response to that question is really like, I think it's depends on people and where they came from and their trauma and, and really the amount of healing work that they've done on their trauma or the amount of work they've done on themselves to be able to become the leader they want to be in the world. How does the work you do as a debt to lead facilitator tie in with your mission? 
becoming a Dare to Lead facilitator was a really beautiful moment. I love Brene Brown. I love her research. I love everything she stands for um, in terms of women. And what I've personally been um, excited about being a certified Dare to Lead facilitator is that I think she's the first woman in a long time that's been able to say some of these things that maybe are concepts we've talked about for a long time in the world in terms of leadership, but she's made it palatable for people and she's made it a common language. And what I love about her common language is now everybody in the room can speak the language together. And that's, that's really powerful. So we're, we're seeing a lot of people want that work in their organizations where it's sort of a starting home-based platform where we're all um, learning a new language and learning how to have courageous conversations that before were nobody wanted to have, or were kind of swept under the carpet. And now we're finding ways where we can talk about them and still be in relationship together. And I think that's the biggest gift of her work uh, is that she's really creating that, that brave space for people to have uncomfortable conversations. And she's a researcher, you know, she's a scientist, she's a researcher, she's a teacher. So all of her stuff has been backed up by 30 plus years of research. I also love that she keeps up with that and she continues to do the research as we grow as humans and societies. So now we have a series of questions that I ask all my guests. What is your proudest achievement in your career to date? My proudest achievement in my career to date as a coach has been serving uh, marginalized people that get to see possibility for the first time. So it's like watching their eyes light up and seeing a new world open up before them that they weren't aware of before. And that has been, that's such a joy. That's my proudest achievement. And probably in my opera career, it was singing at Carnegie Hall. <laughs> That's a claim to fame, isn't it? Yeah. Um, would you be prepared to disclose your biggest mistake and what you learned from it? Apart from all oh my gosh, marrying yes. the wrong man. <laughs> that, that was definitely one. <laughs> uh, my biggest mistake and what I could disclose, I think as a, as a leader, um, one of my biggest mistakes that I made was I was working with a CEO we were in our like third session together. So pretty new together. Um, he'd hired me to, to do work on leadership development and growth. And, um, I, I brought out a tool that we use as coaches. It's a conversation that is, uh, it's a pretty vulnerable in-depth tool that you go pretty quickly into. And I, I think I pushed him too hard to do this tool. And so in the moment he got really scared. And he fired me on the spot. He was, he said, you know, um, I will never do this and this is uncomfortable and I can't do it. So, so no, and I don't want to work with you anymore. And I remember thinking in that moment, um, wow, I don't know what just happened. Like this is never this, I've never had anybody react this strongly. And I wonder what went wrong. And, um, so I apologized and, and I said the thing that I think I reflected to him, Hey, this is part of your relationship pattern. So I did say the thing as a coach that I wanted him to hear before he left, but three months later he came back and he said, you know, Hey, I'm really sorry for that breakdown. And I, I really heard what you had to say that day, but I got the chance to apologize too. And I said, I'm really sorry that I, that I wasn't in relationship with you enough to say that, you know, and I was kind of a new coach. So I was just saying the bold thing and being blunt about it. And it was a beautiful mistake because I, it taught me everything I needed to learn about being with people instead of pushing people. 
And as a new coach, that was, that was so valid, such a valuable gift. And is there a person or experience that has inspired you on your journey? Uh, yeah. I mean, I get inspired every day <laughs> by people. I feel very lucky. Uh, my number one mentor on my journey for pivoting would be, uh, there was a gentleman named Michael Madden, who, as I was coming off the road as an opera singer, and I took time to figure out what I wanted to do. I took this executive assistant job just to, you know, make money and make ends meet while I was figuring out what was next. And he really saw in me the potential to be something more. I sort of was like, I only want to work with for you for a little while. Like I'll temp, you don't need to hire me full time. You know, did a whole bunch of weird stuff to just not be hired. And he was like, no, you should work for me for six months and we can, you know, you can have as much flexibility as you want. And he really gave me um, the opportunity to build what was next for myself while having income, but also really was just the first kind of white CEO type man that believed like, Hey, you can do whatever you want and you just need some space and some support. So I would say he was influential because now everything I talk about with people is about getting support. And he was a huge support to me at a time that I really needed it. Is there a book, podcast or video that you recommend to aspiring leaders? Oh my gosh. Yes. So many. So dare to lead podcast, Brene Brown. That's so much gold in that unlocking us. That's her other one that I would recommend for podcasts. Um, I love Simon Sinek. Can't go wrong with his podcasts. There is another podcast called um, I feel awful by Christine Sachs, a master certified coach and her team. And um, it's little snippets of things that leaders could think about. And I really, I, I find that micro podcast really fun. One of my favorite books on leadership is The Culture Code and Dare to Lead, as well as, as, you know, on my bookshelf and referenced all the time. I think those are the ones that come top to mind right now. And what does your self-care regime look like? Self-care to me is more of a day-to-day approach. So I am not the type of person that's going to be like, I need to wake up every day at five and meditate and then go work out and then get my breakfast. I, um, there are some leaders that are amazing at that. I am not one of them. <laughs> so, so the thing that I know about myself is that I need, all I need is some space and time in the morning to figure out what I need. So I will usually get up two hours before I have to, you know, be on my first call or be anywhere that requires work. And in those two hours, I just get to actually ask myself, what do I need today? Um, sometimes it's a cup of tea. Sometimes it's a walk with the dogs. Sometimes it's yoga or meditation or, or, you know, working out. But I found that one of my biggest blind spots in my own work was not knowing what I need. So the practice that I set up for myself is to really ask myself every morning, what is it that I'm craving today? And so it's a two-part practice, really. It's my well-being and my foundation, but it's also re regrowing the muscle to listen to my own intuition. And finally, what advice would you give your 20-year-old self? Oh, I would tell her that there's nothing to do anymore. Like all the doing and the working really hard is a facade and that the important thing is choosing who you want to be about things and that the work will come from there, but that working yourself to death or proving to the world is an, is a losing game. And it's, it's really just a rat race that doesn't ever end. And there's a whole other circus happening (laughs) in a 
different tent if you're willing to get off that cycle. <laughs> Thanks, Elena. I've enjoyed our interview today and the insights you've provided on supporting women to thrive in the workplace. And thanks for listening to the Compassionate Leadership interview. You can order Compassionate Leadership, the book on Amazon. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can find me at patreon.com forward slash Chris Whitehead. Email me about the show, chris at damflask-consulting.com. This episode was recorded by Zoom and the music was brought to you by 96 Back on CPU Records. <laughs>